Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. All right, all right. Good morning. Good morning, all you cafe Bitcoiners. Morning, Jacob, Tomer, Dom Bay, Greg Foss out in the audience. The rest of you maniacs. What a weekend, huh? Mm-mm-mm. So much resilience in the banking sector. <laughs> How you guys doing? All right. What happened this weekend? I took some time off. Well, what happened this weekend was another bank rolled over. Greg Greg was talking about this like a week or two ago. He's like, First Republic, guys. Actually, he was talking about much longer than that, or much earlier than that. Okay. I'm familiar yeah. with the First Republic story. I think there was a space on Saturday. Did we do a space, Jacob? For like four hours. Yeah, it was quite the marathon. But uh, Terrence was holding it down and we had a lot of people join. So it was great. But uh, yeah, this is starting to become a, a six to seven day, uh, which is which is pretty great. So, but yes. It's pretty great. You, do you If we were to go back over the various different things that we've covered on the show and then looked at like uh, how ahead of like a lot of the news cycle much of it is. I, I think it would be very interesting to see. Morning, Aunt Peter. Morning, Morning. Alex. All right, let's roll. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise and to teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. Today, we are going to talk about among other things, how the nation's banking system is sound and resilient after regulators seized First Republic and sold it to J.P. Morgan Chase. They got a sweetheart deal from what I hear. Uh, later today, we've got Dennis Porter, Nick Batia, the author of Layered Money. We're going to get an update from the Satoshi Action Fund on what they've been working on in the legislative front. A quick little thing here. Do you guys see the update? Like, you remember that video that we were talking about, like last week or whatever it was? Tucker did a two-minute video after he left Fox or got fired or whatever it was. I don't really know, but two-minute video. He tweeted it out, and that tweet is now at seventy-nine million views, and the video itself is at twenty-four billion views. Damn. Damn. <laughs> right. Is that the one where he does the little that somebody's interviewing him? Is it is it that one or is there a different one? 
No, it's just him um, monologuing for about two minutes about how jacked up mainstream media is, basically. <laughs> and that there are a few sources of truth. He, he, he was talking about Kathy Bitcoin, I'm, I'm quite certain. But, yeah. All right. Other goodies. Let's start off with, there's a really good clip, CNBC, with Kenzie Sigalos, who is, who is in here often hanging out on our show. One of these days, she'll come up and talk to us. I don't know if she can. I don't know if she's allowed to do that. But anyway, uh, pretty good. Let's roll it. All right. We're also watching the price action in Bitcoin this morning. The asset now up four months in a row. That's its longest monthly winning streak since 2021 as it hovers just a tick below $30,000 a coin. But the stock's tracking that digital currency, not as fortunate as regulators continue to put the squeeze on that sector. Joining us now, CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos. Mac, good morning. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Frank. All right, so give us a sense of what's going on in the cryptocurrency space. Looking at them right now, all of them down in the pre-market. Right. And there are a couple of things going on here. So you've mentioned Coinbase. It's having this regulatory fight with the SEC that really ratcheted up last week. And so there are some concerns among investors that if there are more draconian rules coming down the pike, that it may uh, you know, be a headwind for the sector. That being said, the banking crisis, typically a good thing. So First Republic may also uh, have some bearing on price moves this coming week. All right. Speaking of the banking crisis, obviously our big news today, First Republic Bank being taken over by J.P. Morgan. How has the banking crisis impacted the cryptocurrency market? A lot of us have been watching cryptocurrencies since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And I mean, you look at a chart of the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies starting from March 10th, when we saw a lot of the problems begin with Silicon Valley Bank. And it's just been this like this upward trend. Bitcoin gained 22 percent in March alone. And part of that has to do, at least the bulls would say, with the fact that there's this erosion of confidence in the traditional banking system. And then they see cryptocurrencies, these de decentralized currencies outside. Interesting. Did you hear the narrative with the uh, basically they're tying people paying attention to this thing, to what's going on in the banking sector? That is very fascinating for me to see. All right. I'm not talking anymore. You guys talk about something. <laughs> wow. It's Monday at 10.06 a.m. Eastern. We got it all figured out already. Like, I'm teeing all this stuff up for you guys yeah. to comment on. It's just crickets. Crickets. Oh, it's just, uh, it's, it's, no, it's routine, you know? Another, another bank down, another sale. Happened quick, middle of the night. Just, you know, business as usual. I saw it here on some Canadian news channel. I don't know how reliable it is, but apparently uh, Trudeau and the finance minister have passed some measure that allows them to bail out the banks with the, our equivalent of the FDIC, which is called the CDIC. So they, although they're not expecting any concerns, they've taken proactive measures to bail out deposits to avoid any concern uh, over here too. We only have, I see, uh, oh, here comes Greg Foss. He can tell you how many banks we have here in Canada. And uh, he'll, he'll be much more colorful than me uh, in describing this news story if he's aware of it. Morning, Greg. Happy Monday. Hey, Tomer. Um, I actually am not aware of that story. Um, although we do have eight 
banks in Canada, by and large, six are uh, coast to coast. So we don't have the equivalent in the United States of interstate banking restrictions. Our banking system was set up with uh, no provincial barriers. So in the USA, um, there was interstate banking restrictions and that's why uh, there's so many more. Rule of 10, right? Like divide everything in the United States by 10 and you get Canada by and large. So GDP population, that works well. But the number of banks in the USA is still uh, 5,000, of which the rule of 10 uh, would mean that Canada should have 500 and we have less than 10. And that's just because our regulatory environment was set up differently. And by and large, it's worked well for Canada. Uh, we did not have a subprime mortgage crisis. We did have a uh, uh, LBC, Latin American, or lesser developed country, primarily Latin American debt crisis, uh, of which one bank absolutely uh, avoided that. Uh, TD Bank, so hats off to TD Bank. But then 10 years later, they got into a whole bunch of shit in the uh, telecom media and technology square TMT. So uh, the Canadian banks are no different from the U.S. They are regularly insolvent on a mark-to-market basis. They're just bigger on a per capita basis and therefore too big to fail. There will not be a bank failure in Canada without a orchestrated bailout. And and this is where, you know, respect to Terrence, but, you know, uh, he said uh, Deutsche Bank is too big to fail. There, Deutsche Bank will not fail. He's correct that it won't fail, but it'll go the way of CSFB, where there will be an orchestrated merger uh, by the state. And uh, if that uh, does not come to fruition, then the state will take it over because these banks are too big to fail. It's that simple. And so JP Morgan, everybody's applauding JP Morgan. Oh, it's accretive to earnings. You read these idiot bank analyst reports, accretive to earnings. Oh, this is so good for the nation. Uh, they get some wealth advisors. Jamie Dimon's a star. Um, yeah, Jamie Dimon's a star within the game that's orchestrated by uh, uh, the Fiat Ponzi, right? The banks are the transfer mechanism in the Fiat Ponzi. And when you're too big to fail, of which JP Morgan is absolutely too big to fail, they get, um, you know, last look, if you will. It's like playing cards and saying, okay, everyone else's bid came in. Okay, uh, I get uh, I get last look. Uh, I can decide whether I'm going to uh, uh, up the ante and win this, uh, uh, you know, gift. And so the problem, though, is, you know, they're not doing book value accounting. They're doing uh, uh, earnings accounting. And J.P. Morgan is exposed to all the same risks that uh, First Republic. But here's why I wanted to jump on stage, Alex. Thanks for inviting me up. It's very simply lost in this weekend's commentary was Charlie Munger. And I think you guys know what I think of Charlie Munger. But the reality is that Charlie Munger gets last look on just about everything in the banking system. And Charlie Munger is not buying banks. In fact, Charlie Munger is selling banks, stocks. And in fact, Charlie Munger is raising the alarm. This is quite funny to me in basically saying that there are huge problems in the regional bank square. And their huge problems are predominantly because of commercial real estate. Now, this is Charlie Munger. Don't forget, he has an unfair advantage as well. He will get last look. That's the way the system works. And he's decided that his last look is not worth it. He'll let the last look go to JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, because of the synergies that are available and the ability to wring costs out of the system with a JP Morgan. But I really believe that this comment by Charlie Munger 
was so important. And this is Charlie Munger. And, you know, this is not Greg Foss saying this, although I totally agree with what he's saying. The commercial real estate problems within the, within the regional banking space in the United States are very severe. This is from a guy, once again, I'll say it three times and you can take this off your bingo card, who gets last look at things. And his last look is telling him that it's not worth investing. In fact, he's selling because he thinks things go lower from here in the banking space. Um, you know, all I can say is watch things very carefully. I still believe we're in the early innings of this uh, uh, financial restructuring. That's what we'll call it, a financial restructuring. Over to you guys. Two great quotes, man. The first one, these banks are regularly insolvent on a mark-to-market basis. And then this last one, the commercial real estate problem in regional banks is, what did you say, severe? Well, you know, he, he laid it out, right? He basically, if you look at his quote, I don't have it in front of me, and if I was smart enough to remember how to put it in the nest, I would, but I'm not. Um, it's something along the lines that the commercial real estate uh, is a new paradigm. They're not marking these things to market. There's there's a, a group of uh, property owners who don't want to be the first ones to uh, to write down uh, the value of the property because you know they're illiquid assets and they're they're so there's they're playing the game of extend and pretend, right? Let's just pretend that these properties have maintained their value, uh, but there's no bids. So the commercial real estate uh, problem, 50% of the commercial real estate loans in the USA are held by the regional banking system. And one of the things that people forget is this is the third, so FRC, First Republic, is the third top 20 bank in the USA to fail. I mean, these aren't small, you know, Midwest uh, banks that lend to farmers and stuff. These are large 250 billion in assets, which means there's 250 billion of on balance sheet loans extended from these banks. And it's like there's no reporting in MS in, in mainstream media. It's like this happens all the time. No, guys, this does not happen all the time. It might happen with the small, you know, uh, community banks out west when there's a farm, uh, you know, a certain area gets hit by drought and everything. But no, this is big stuff. Top 20 banks in the USA. And um, again, it's you know, just, what's crazy you know, about all this. It's that it, it's that, you know, people oftentimes don't consider, uh, consider the second and third order effects of their decisions. And if you think this through, all of this stuff started with two years of lockdown, two years of lockdown caused so many people to go remote. Now that they're remote, they don't want to work in the office. So there's nobody going to the office. Everybody's like, well, what do I need that office space for? So that's true. And that Charlie Munger, I think it's Charlie, but if not, there's plenty of statistics to show this, how many of the leases are actually being paid for. They're being serviced, but the people are not in the office. Right. And so there's uh, it, it extends on a lot of different levels. And then it also goes down to the small businesses in the areas of these uh, major office centers that, uh, you know, they're food courts and all those things. But yeah, 100 percent. Alex, this is Charlie Munger saying this. I mean, he and I are not the best of friends, not that he would ever know who I am. But at the end of the day, I believe he gives very poor advice on certain things. But this is advice he's giving and he has an advantage, people. He has the last look. 
I, I just can't, I cannot believe how more people aren't, aren't focusing on that as being the news of the weekend personally, but maybe it'll, it'll, it'll seep in over time, but don't ever, you know, this is free information that he's giving and he's not a hedge fund. He's not short those things. He is still bank of America's, uh, a massive shareholder in bank of America. And there's basically five banks in the USA. Well, let's say seven banks in the USA that are too big to fail. And the rest of them, game on. Game on, survival of the last lookers. Okay, survival of the last lookers. And unfair game, but that's the way the game is played. Shout out to Amanda Cavallari. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Foss. Good to see you. How are you? I saw you were skiing. Getting I, was skiing I was skiing. I was skiing with just, <laughs> Justin Doré. He tried a <laughs> set. He he tried a seven twenty and went about seven sixty. Okay. So oh, uh, yeah, so yeah. Far. Well, well, so close, but just over over rotated. The kid is hilarious, man. But yeah, yeah. we uh we uh we did a lot of good spring skiing, but then a lot of good spring uh, uh partying as well on the deck. So it was a blast. Yeah. Yeah, have your sunscreen those days, huh? Oh, it was nuts. It was nuts. But it was like, uh, you know, it was epic. It was uh, still a ton of snow and it was still, it wasn't as slushy as it should be because uh, it was one of the first days that it really got that warm, you know? So um, it was a blast. But yeah, we're going to, uh, why? well, we're going to do a, a Whistler, uh, a couple of Whistler Bitcoin meetups with Seb Bunny and uh, Justin Dore. Uh, for those nice. who don't know who Justin is, he's a Canadian Olympic skier. He won a gold medal in Sochi with his wife um, in something called uh, uh, ski cross, which is when you go in the uh, in the half pipe, but you do it on a pair of skis, not on a snowboard. And uh, he went to Jackson Hole with uh, for the for the Bitcoin mining conference that Amanda put together. It was just an absolute riot out in uh, out in uh, Wyoming there. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think that kind of brings me back to like what we were on the First Republic piece because the the founder of First, First Republic, like they moved out here um, and set up a lot of operations out here. So a lot of like locals moved a lot of their um, funds into First Re Republic over the last few years. So it's going to hit pretty hard wow. here. Wow. Yeah, it's not oh, wow. good. Yeah, yeah. Like I have a, yeah. So a lot of us, you know, well, I, I think, I think, I think, yeah, but I think they'll be okay. I think they're going to honor yeah. the, they have to honor the, um, uh, you know, the secure, uh, all deposits are, uh, are insured. And, uh, if they don't, that'll just cause another couple of runs here and there. And then, uh, you know, after you well, have a few, it could be serious. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Technically not all, all deposits are insured, right? I mean, this is, this was the big deal with Yellen the other day where, she was being questioned by that congressman and he's like, okay, well, what about my banks in my state? You know, are you going to bail them out? And she basically said, we will do this on a selective basis based upon whether we, I'm paraphrasing, whether we think they're systemically important or not. Well, so Alex, here's the key. Okay. So in this, uh, JP Morgan takeover, um, he, JP Morgan and the FDIC have agreed to share losses. Okay. What does that mean? means depositors will be made whole and there will be losses on the loan book but those loan accounting losses will be shared by the fdic and jp morgan so why would jp morgan share in losses well because over time he believes it's accretive to earnings because he can wring out the costs of 
let's say the duplicative costs of having loan officers, having wealth managers, uh, having back office systems at First Republic, you just get rid of all that and you, you fold it into the JP Morgan model. And over time, that is very accretive. And the price you are paying up front is agreeing. So it's not a price, it's a commitment, agreeing to share the losses. Like anybody who's waiting for the equity to open on First Republic, you please go back to school, okay? Just, just go fucking back to school and don't invest your own money. Even when you go back to school, don't invest your own money. You have no clue how financial markets work and uh, the banking system and how uh, this, the equity holders are, uh, you know, there's no defense for the equity holders. That is done. It's a bagel. It's over. You guys were worth negative $10 billion or even higher. They were, some estimates is negative $20 billion was the true net worth of the equity. And you still had these people trying to catch a falling knife saying, oh, my God, it's got to be cheap. It's trading it for a $1 billion market cap, and it used to be worth $60 billion. I mean, this is the problem with you having idiot retail investors that have no clue how to invest money on a risk-reward basis. But they do it because, well, hey, Alex, it has to be cheap. It's close to zero in a price. Yeah, yeah, guess what? It'll go to zero. So don't overthink things. Anyway, it makes me so angry because these are the bag holders. They get caught holding the bag. And, you know, the people that really should be accountable are the executives of First Republic who sold bank stock for their own personal gain. The executives of the bank, they should be brought to trial and, and have to pay back the proceeds of those shareholder sales that went into a net you know, it was a zero-sum transaction. There was some pension plan or some family office or some retail investor that bought the stock at 160 bucks a share, and it's now worth zero. These are big, big swings in valuation. And that's what happens when you're levered 25 times, and that's what banks are, levered 25 times. I think it's so interesting, Greg, because, like, First Republic was so, you know, they they pride themselves on being one of the most conservative banks, you know, in the world. So I taught a group of, um, a group of folks that work there at, I think like October, 2021 about Bitcoin and just like the, you know, the landscape and just more like theoretical because they can't touch it. Right. So it was more just like education high level because they absolutely could not touch it at that time. So I always was poking fun of like, hey, when are you guys gonna bank the Bitcoiners? <laughs> and it's like yeah. maybe it's a good thing they never did, right? So maybe well yeah, maybe, but you know what again, so First Republic, there's no difference in their banking model, Amanda. Everyone says they were conservative lenders. Well, that's like saying, well, I, I'm gonna have to think up an expression, but it, it's there's no such thing as conservative lending. Lending is risky. And it's particularly risky, risky to the equity holder because 96 cents on the $100 loan, excuse me, the uh, $96 on the $100 loan is depositors' money. And the $4 that you're putting up as a bank stockholder, that thing is what absorbs the losses. But imagine on a loan that's worth 100 bucks, it can go down way more than $4, right? And that's your leverage. That's your 25 times leverage because 25 times four equals 100 bucks. That is your 25 times leverage to your bank stock. And there's the biggest problem. The depositors are going to be made whole most times. And that's the $96 on $100. But the $4, that gets vaporized. But don't forget that 
First Republic was worth at one point 60 billion US dollars. Can you imagine, Amanda, if those stakeholders or those shareholders had actually said, you know what, I'm going to sell and I'm going to put that money into Bitcoin. Well, there's the, the flow of funds. That's, you know, marginal flow of funds into our asset. They can really move the price. And uh, this will happen over time. It won't happen all at once. But it's, you know, the difference between a depositor and a bank shareholder is very, very meaningful. And hopefully you have friends that, that are depositors that will be made whole. But if they own the bank stock and didn't own Bitcoin, well, Amanda, they should be disbanded from Jackson Hole. They're too stupid to live in that beautiful town. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get some of those depositors. We'll get more of them at the ski summit next year. So you can orange pill them in person, Greg. <laughs> if, you'll, if you'll have me back. Yeah, please. But we got to ski more. So that's the deal. I got to get an oxygen. I got to get an oxygen <laughs> tank. We can do that. Yeah, it's a wild ride. Like, it'll be interesting to see kind of the, like, the fallout here. I think for a lot of people who aren't familiar, like, Jackson's a pretty small town. There's, like, 30,000 people, but it's a lot of, you know, like, Fortune 500 former current board members. Like, it's an wow. interesting place. Yeah. It's really crazy. Yeah. Well, I met some yeah. of them, and they're really, they are interesting. I really hope that, again, it's not, it's not the fault of the depositor. It is absolutely not the fault of the depositor. It's the fault of the system. And then, to an extent, bank shareholders should be questioned because, you know, you, you just can't assume that a bank stock is safe. That is a that is a misnomer. Bank stocks are not safe. Despite what your financial advisor tells you, they are the opposite of safe. They have asymmetric downside. And that's the definition of a risky investment. Asymmetric downside versus upside. Yeah, I think, and one thing that, you know, kind of bringing this back to like the DC thing as well, there was a Bitcoin Policy Institute had a had an event out there last week at the press club of what makes Bitcoin special. And then Bitcoin Today Coalition, we do a lot of work on the Hill. So like education on the Hill and advocacy and then um, elsewhere in DC as well and kind of are more stealthy so people can feel like they trust us. So we're not tweeting about every meeting so they can ask the dumb questions and not feel like they're going to get outed as a staffer. But we had a lot of miners with us and a lot of these miners are getting debanked. And these staffers had like, you know, a lot of them had no idea, but some of them that are on like financial services committees or whatever, asking a lot of pretty aggressive questions to us about, you know, the SEC um, and what's going on. A lot of, you know, so there's the tone out there feels like it's changing a little bit in a weird way. I'm a little optimistic, but it's almost like, you know, too late for some of this. I think Dom, Dom does a lot on um, policy work too and um, works with yeah, unions. Well, I'd be curious thanks. what he thinks. Yeah. Well, thank, sorry to jump in, Dom. Yeah, but thanks for all that hard work, guys. I mean, this is, this is what we need, right? To bring the truth to the forefront. And I did see your, your tweet that I, I found particularly interesting. You know, about people who, who need to, well, nobody needs to, but it's coming out of the Anon, which I imagine is someone who's Anon on Twitter. Uh, yeah, applause that Foss is finally understanding what a NIM is and an Anon and all that. But look, um, yeah, you need to, the more people that can, can dox themselves, like Alpha Zeta, and who, who works for Swan and is doing such amazing work on that, uh, nakamotoportfolio.com um 
I understand if you don't want to be in the public eye, but those that, that, that believe that they can be without risk to uh, uh, their safety or their personal uh, privacy, uh, I, I applaud that. So thank you for what you're doing in the public eye in, in BC and uh, what Dennis is going to do. I'm not sure if I'll be able to be on uh, later on. You can probably hear I'm on a train right now. But uh, anyway, yeah, over to Dom, and I'll go on listen only for a little while here, Alex. I got to walk to the office. Thanks, Voss, and what's up, Amanda? Um, yeah, it's trying to tell these, you know, I just posted something um, that CalPERS, again, the largest pension in the United States, has lost $4 billion since the banking crisis. Yet, you know, uh, Amanda, myself, folks will sit down with, with uh, labor unions to uh, discuss um, adding Bitcoin to the portfolio, and it's like um, shrugged off. How much loss uh, are these funds going to absorb before they start looking to the future? Um, and again, you know, uh, it's interesting what we talked about here, I think, over the weekend. First Republic, you know, unlike Signature and Silicon Valley, which were a little bit, uh, um, you know, they're not as visible to the to the normal, you know, to the to the to the public in America. First Republic, you can find those on every corner. I remember the media, you know, we all know they were trying to connect uh, Silicon Valley and even signature to risky crypto bets. Well, here's First Republic, like Amanda was saying, I'm happy that they didn't uh, have any kind of association with Bitcoin and they, they go down now. Uh, clearly, no, I, although who knows, maybe the media could connect it somehow. They had a, a Bitcoin sign in the parking lot or something, so they'll blame that. But uh Still working on, on unions, workforce, the pensions. Again, CalPERS, 72% funded as of June of 2022. $4 billion in loss. Uh, Fosret talked about the commercial real estate uh, situation, which forms kind of major pillars of all major pensions. And, um, you know, you'll talk to some unions and they'll go, I don't get Bitcoin. What's its use? Well, what's the use of off of a of a of a uh, you know eighty story high rise? That's all office that can't be converted to other uh, usage right now. So, it'd be interesting to see how this happens. But gotta just keep plugging away. Hey Dom, on that subject, you know, for the listeners, what does seventy two percent funded mean, please? Yeah, so so seventy two percent funded just means that. Of all the, uh, and I know, I know Joe can, you know, touch on this too, but of all the um, liabilities and all the um, commitments that the fund has, 72% of that is funded in assets. So every, if they liquidated everything they had on the books, um, they're short. Correct. And that's the key. That's the key. In other words, a different way of saying it is 28% of your pension is not there unless they start making really good investments. And so far, a good investment, as Foss learns, is not losing $4 billion. That means your funded status has actually gone lower. So let's just say your funding status has gone to 71% now. And CalPERS is all the public employee retirement system of California. This is not a drill, people. Yeah, yeah. Sure. okay, and, and what, what happens after that? So, so when an organization like that finds itself in this kind of a pickle, what's next? 
So there's, so there's your, all, there, oh, go ahead, Don, but there's something called the pension benefit uh, system in the U.S. I can't remember what the acronym is, is pension benefit, PBOC, I think it stands for or whatever, but go ahead. Yeah, there's, there's only three ways for a pension to re uh, to reapproach the funded status. And again, it's not completely unusual for pensions to not be fully funded. Remember, you know, there are folks paying into the pension, so that's a steady money coming in. But there's only three ways to reapproach 100% or getting closer to it. That is portfolio performance, which, again, would defy all track records other than a very few brief periods of excessive success in portfolios. And remember, after the financial crisis, pensions are now a lot uh, more conservative and they're not taking risks. So that's one way, which is highly unlikely. The second is more contributions from the workforce. That happened in California, 2000, I think 14, they extended the uh, retirement age for public employees from uh, just looking at the firefighters, right? 55 to 57, you see what ha what's happening in France. So they can push off retirement dates to get money. They can ask for higher contributions from the uh, uh, employees. And then the other way is to hit the taxpayers from the municipality side. So they go to the cities and basically they send them a bill and they go, here is your bill. We are not funded. Uh, please put in more money uh, for cities that are well off. They can keep up with this. But for a lot of cities, they look at shutting down valuable, uh, critical infrastructure, right? Uh, street cleaning, uh, garbage pickup, uh, police and fire. And they have to make those decisions. And for the ones that can't make the decision, they go, sorry, we can't pay. Then you have a domino effect. Then you have you start approaching 72 percent to 68 to 65 now you're looking at pension collapse, and that's a domino effect that would be massive. That's so crazy sounding. And I uh, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but a lot of pensions own commercial real estate, and these, these things are on the books at an unreasonably high valuation. So the 72%, if you actually mark to market the book, might be far lower than 72%. This is all actuarial accounting with money coming in and defined benefits going out the door. So what, what are the possible second and third order effects of, of pension plans basically collapsing or not being able to pay up? Well, wouldn't you say that maybe people who think they're going to retire aren't able to retire? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of you know, it's kind of along the lines of some of the social security stuff. You're looking at them just telling folks, hey, the deal you made when you started your career here, you know, uh, we always talk about trading time for money and, and how Bitcoin's so amazing because you're, you're trading time for money that will hold over time. Uh, not the case. So you get to the end of the road. Hey, you're not just by the way, as inflation is going through the roof, uh, you're getting 75% half of your pension. There's also some rules in place in California which don't allow that to happen. There's court decisions that say you cannot break that deal. You you hired folks who said, here's what you're going to get. Uh, and that's on the pension side. A lot of that is on the safety employee side. But again, you know, retiring later, more contributions. So, okay. Uh, so, so, you know, that in the context of what you just said, Dom, 
where they're saying to these guys, okay, you can't break that deal. Well, what happens if they don't have a choice? What happens? Like, this is math, right? Like Greg likes to say. So if they, if they, if they're unable to, to continue for some, at some point for whatever reason, I mean, the government telling them you're, you can't, Greg, stop it. That was interesting. They, that's the phone. Yeah. That's the phone. They get the call. That's the red phone. That's the bat phone that says, we <laughs> Oh cannot, my God. We cannot, we cannot make your payments. We are going to have to restructure this pension plan. Come on, people. Wake the fuck up. What do you think is the outcome? Here's like, here's yeah, how I, it gets like really dark, Alex, because I used to, I, worked in aging and and all of that before so i had a fellowship with aarp like they have no idea they have 40 million members over the age of 50 but they are like part of what i'm doing in dc is also trying to orange pill aarp so if people could do that at the state level that'd be amazing as well like have if you're over 50 or you have family that is like go into the state offices and just teach them about bitcoin because like i think this is going to get so bad for younger generations as well there's this uh, study if like if the boomers can't offload also their their homes right to um, millennials and gen z then we're like we have a whole nother level of you know of i don't even know of going backwards that it's we can't we can't really move from this so we're going to be stuck for a couple decades because we do have so many boomers right and so I think that's going to be such a huge, a huge problem. You look at other countries around the world, like China has a four-two-one family structure. Japan is very old. Italy's very old, and so it's just going to keep older generations working longer in the U.S. And then we're also going to have more stress on not just Medicare but on Medicaid because it's we're you know extending life, but we're having to do that with the reliance on like pharma and medical device companies like that's very expensive and we don't have enough um with dementia we don't have enough like you know memory care units for what's going to come as well so it's just going to be really really awful for families and they won't be able to afford to care for their loved ones so there's you know there i think there are like 30 million family caregivers already that number will probably go up quite a bit which basically means like if you're caring for an older person in your family, like your work is suffering and your immediate family is suffering and your health is suffering. So it's just going to be this really like gnarly, gnarly snowball that's just going to, you know, it's going to be huge. So that's, that's the really big problem here. So we need to put work on these pensions and these unions to get a little bit of Bitcoin, at least in their plans. Yeah. The, the, and that's another good point. The, the, the financial portfolio and the unfunded liabilities don't necessarily take some crazy person may say, or come out with a disease that will uh, reduce the life expectancy. Uh Oh, I didn't say that, but listen, it's all actuarial accounting. And if the life expectancy of the pensioner decreases, well, that makes things better from an actuarial accounting basis as your defined benefit terminates when the, uh, a pensioner terminates. So wow, I never there's, thought about there's that. There's some there's some wicked That's wicked. That's just ugly. Well, yeah, I well, mean, especially Greg, when it's like you have a bunch of older men who are gambling and smoking cigarettes in this specific country, and it's the older women who don't smoke cigarettes and actually help, you know, with the families. So I I hear what you're saying. I did that thought has crossed my mind many a times. 
Jump in there, Peter. So, Joe, uh, Carlos Terry uh, hasn't hasn't popped up here, and it's unfortunate because, you know, he he came up with. Well, I'm, I'll discredit him. I don't know who came up with it, but I'll credit him. He came up with the the um, and I can't say it as eloquent as he eloquently as he as he can. I'm no fan of the banks. Um, I, you know, I don't like the fact that that they're able to counterfeit money, uh, and they and they basically steal from from everybody um, with with their license to to counterfeit. But you know, Joe was talking about how the BTFD fund uh, was revealed uh, because of of uh, First Republic going into receivership uh, and then sold, um, and it shows that only two banks were drawing on those funds. And so, you know, that's not anecdotal evidence. That's, that's data. Um, how, how can we explain that other, if, if the banking system is, is failing, how can we explain that other banks aren't drawing on these programs to be able to, um, uh, to be able to fund themselves? Well, at the end of the day, those funds are not cheap. Right, they cost about four and a half percent, and will go up to four and three quarters overnight, plus a nominal spread. But uh, sometimes you don't have a choice. So anyone else who doesn't need those funds and can get them through interbank deposits, which is an, a very fluid uh, interbank deposit market, they're going to draw on the interbank deposit market before they have to go to the discount window, Peter. So I mean, you got to be careful. Like I, I've said this as well. It used to be the walk of shame, borrowing at the discount window and the BTFP pro, uh, program, which does not stand for backstop the Fiat Ponzi, but I believe that's what it should stand for. Uh, borrowing at the discount window is the walk of shame. And uh, not only is it the walk of shame, meaning you can't. What was, was the walk of shame or is the walk of shame? It still is, but uh, it's, it's, it's very expensive funding as well. So you know, when you're earning three and a half percent on your loan book and at the margin, you have to borrow your own money at four and a half percent, that business model blows, doesn't it? You're losing 100 basis points <laughs> and, and that's not a good business model. So that's why it's not sustainable. So anybody who is borrowing at the discount window and has a loan book that yields less than the short term discount borrowing rate, which is close to five percent, um, you're an idiot. But you're an idiot because you got yourself into this problem. And uh, that's why the discount window exists. But it certainly is not made to be a reward for banking. It's made to be uh, a penalty. And the penalty in the case of First Republic was, well, they lost their business. And you can say, well, who really got hurt? It's the shareholders. Once again, it's the executives. It's the family that founded First Republic. I mean, they took a lot of money out of that institution, but they also still had, I'm certain, a huge amount of their net worth in the bank stock of that in institution that's now worth zero. So, you know, there's uh, the executives who uh, lose their jobs. There's the, the people that lose their jobs. I'm not saying that the little guy working at the bank is to blame, but there's still pain flows downhill. And um, yeah, that's a, the discount window is a very important mechanism in the Fiat Ponzi, but it's not a, it's, it's very uh, onerous as well. It costs money. And in the economics of banking, you don't pay more on your deposits than you're making on your loans or you go out of business. And that's what happened to First Republic. See ya.
Yeah, I, was, I have to head out, but I just wanted, sorry to interrupt, just wanted to say thanks for having me up. And yeah, I think as we like do stuff in DC, it's important to, you know, remember that there's um, like, there's a tack to it and a way to do it. So that's my, my hey, last Amanda, thing. before you go, can you give us like a one minute, tell us one minute about how things went? What was your feeling? Like, uh, what did you come away with? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we met with both Democrat and Republican office. So we had 21 Bitcoiners, you know, a lot of us from different backgrounds. Um, it was pretty heavy mining just because that's my my world. And I think, you know, the ESG attack is kind of the biggest vector right now. So uh, we did talk in each meeting about, you know, the energy consumption and taught a lot about, you know, there's a lot of stranded energy out there, how much Bitcoin actually uses and why it's actually we need it for our grid to build um, resiliency and build out infrastructure. So that was surprising, especially, I think, to Dem offices. So that's pretty useful right now. Um, the other piece was, you know, like I said earlier, I think that that um, seems like Republicans are really gearing up to go after Gensler. So they were asking very intelligent questions um about the SEC and mining specifically. A lot of miners have been getting some interesting inbound um, on reporting. That doesn't seem like data centers are getting the, this type of inbound. So um, and that's pretty well known. A lot are publishing about that. A lot of miners are. So that's those are kind of some big themes. I would say like our best bet is to you know, know your strengths as an individual. If you're capable of being a chameleon and it's painful for me too, um, on both sides, it's painful for me, but I can do it in speaking their language, then go for the left and right. But if you're only capable of speaking to the right and you're passionate about that, just focus on that. And then if you're, you know, if you're more progressive or left, then focus on that. Like know yourself because if you're trying to fake it, they're going to sense it really quickly. So, and that's not going to do Bitcoin any favor. So put your own ego to the side and know your strengths and focus on what, you know, who you're able to communicate with effectively. Um, I would say, you know, each of us can go at a local level and find these state um, committee hearings. So those are on your, your state websites as well. And you can show up to these hearings. You don't have to be anyone special. Um, you can just be anyone. I mean, it's amazing to be able to do that. So I would say that and then getting really creative. Like if you're over the age of 50 or if you have a family member over the age of 50 or friends that are like Bitcoiners and they're AARP members, literally just go into the state office and say you want, you know, AARP to be pro Bitcoin for the pension, like what we were talking about earlier with Dom. So I think that's huge. Like that's something we can all do. Um, but that's my that's my piece. I think SEC is going to be scrutinized more by Republicans and by, um, you know, McHenry specifically. Uh, we already saw a preview of that the other week and their that committee um, financial services on the House side. So that'll be really interesting. Um, I am still I've been really loving how curious people are about the Lummis Gillibrand bill. Um, you know, Lummis very much works across the aisle behind the scenes and doesn't require a lot of, you know, taking credit for things. So that's been something that we shared as well as like just, you know, talk to the Lummis office. And that's been always received well. But I think there's like a sense of urgency now. And it's, you know, the policy, the drafts already written. So whether that ends up, you know, 
in another committee with some of the, you know, a lot of the same language or whatever it is, I think that's a win for us as well. Well, Amanda, on behalf of Canada, thank you for what you're doing. And um, I uh, love your advice. And it reminds me of what Jeff Booth says, right? Meet them where they are, not where you want them to be. So um, I'm not going to be very good at talking to the left-leaning people, but uh, I'll know my strengths um, at the end of the day. Uh, this is about uh, speaking the truth, and uh, you're doing a great job. So uh, once again, I uh, really appreciate what you're doing for my children. Thank you. You all friend. as well. Yeah, and mine hopefully one day. So it's selfish for me too, Greg. Have a good day, everyone. Bye, Amanda. Thanks for hanging. Very cool. All righty. Uh, it is 8.48, so, well, my time anyway. Uh, so we're near the top of the hour. Why don't we um, hit some announcements real quick before we keep rolling here? You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Welcome. If you have never been here before, uh, we do talk about Bitcoin every single day, Monday through Friday, and we do it live on Twitter Spaces Starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours. Also a pod on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple if you can't catch the live show. A couple of quick items. The Juno Bitcoin Bootcamp is coming up this Saturday. Can you believe it? Five days away. Uh, May 6th. So I'll be remoting in alongside Sam Callahan, Dom Bay, Dennis Porter, Andy Pitt, Greg Foss, Nat Brunel. Uh, was this thing's been organized by Wade Hope, bringing in union leaders, native corporation executives, and legislators, as well as their staffers, so that we can teach them about Bitcoin. Personally, I think this is a good thing. You know, there are some people who are like, ah, just you can't trust politicians. Well, remember, these are human beings too. These are people. And every single one of us has our, you know, humans tend to operate in their own best self-interest. And when people figure out what Bitcoin is, whether they want to or not, like, you know, I bet you there was a lot of people who didn't want email. They're like, I hate this thing for whatever reason. Fill in the blank. Email sucks. Fill in the blank as to why. And at some point, it's just like, hey, man, this is the thing. This is going to be a thing. It doesn't really matter whether you like it or not. It's coming. Uh, so you better figure out what it is. I was one of those guys that saw no use for email, didn't understand it, and just kind of thought, well, whatever. And that was actually one of the reasons that um, I finally got into Bitcoin was because um, I, I didn't really know what it was at the time. But in my gut, I felt like this was some kind of technology that was going to change things. It was going to be a secular wave and it was going to be much like the Internet. And I said to myself at that time, I'm not going to miss out on this one. I missed out on the last one. Uh, and so um, I bought a little and uh, my journey began there. Okay. Three other quick things that I need to hit. Thanks for that, Peter. Uh, first of all, Swan Bitcoin is hiring a director of, director of marketing for global wealth. Go to bitcoinerjobs.com where we post everything. We're also hiring a new head of client services. Um, because our current head, who is freaking awesome, Reed, if you ever hear this, we love you, man. He's going to come. 
he's he's going to go spend some time and he had a new baby and they're going to go adventuring and hang out with the baby and do all this other kind of stuff. So a great break, but we need someone to fill his gigantic shoes. No pressure. Um, go to bitcoinerjobs.com to check out that, that posting. Swan is sponsoring the toxic happy hour pleb party in Miami on May 18th. This is now only 18 days away. I can't believe it's about two weeks. So I hope you're going to that. I'm definitely going. If you are a Swan private client, we have a block of tickets. Make sure you talk to me, Terrence, any of the other Swan private guys. We will hook you up. Oh, and finally, I'm going to be hosting a range day. It's going to be on the 17th. So uh, basically, we're going down to Homestead. We're going to provide the instructors, the range safety officers, the gear, the guns, all that stuff. You pay your range fees. You pay for your ammo. And we will teach you, even if you're brand new. Beginners all the way through advanced. We're basically going to be doing a bunch of we're going to be doing a bunch of handgun drills, starting out with safety, of course, uh, and fundamentals, and and quickly progressing to the point where we're going to do a qualifier at the end. It's going to be very fun. Shoot me a DM if you're interested in that. I think we've only got like five slots left. Everybody else is all paid up, ready to go. So, last chance, guys, to get in this thing. All right, we have some time to talk about a few more items. You guys want to dig in a little deeper on what's going on with um, First Republic? The way this thing broke down, I saw a really interesting tweet about this, and I'd like to get you guys' feedback on it. Is And this is a tweet from Kobesi Letter. He goes, in acquiring First Republic Bank... Okay, so for those of you who don't know, you weren't, you're catching up just now from the first part of today's show. Um. Essentially, First Republic was seized by the California regulator. It was placed into receivership on the FDIC, and it was sold to J.P. Morgan. I guess this all happened over the weekend in some kind of a uh, sweetheart deal. I guess J.P. Morgan pays what, like somewhere between ten and thirteen billion, and they're going to get fifty billion in in low cost loans uh, from the government as as compensation or part of their you know part of doing this. Um, and I and I suspect that like FDIC is sharing some of the burden here uh, with JP Morgan. So I'm not sure that JP Morgan's going to end up coughing up that entire amount, but we'll see. But here's the tweet. It goes in acquiring first Republic bank, JP Morgan has number one bypassed laws against acquiring a bank while controlling 10% plus 10 plus percent of us deposits. Uh, it has shared a $13 billion in losses with the FDIC. It has received a $50 billion loan from the FDIC. It has effectively bought back its own deposits. It expects to profit $5 billion plus over the next five years. I don't know how this person came to that conclusion, but I mean, why else would they do it? They're not going to do it out of the kindness of their hearts, right? Uh, and then they added $18 billion in market cap just this morning. This is crazy. And then here's the last part. This crisis has taught us that rules don't matter in times of panic. And that was from Kobesi letter. And you guys have, have any thoughts on this? Well, Alex, um, I'll wait for anybody else to say something, but yeah, that's bank math. Um, you know, why is it accretive, which for those people listening, accretive means earnings positive. And that's because the deposits that they are getting uh, are below a marginal value 
let's call it matched maturity marginal value of funds pricing that JP Morgan has set up internally, which means uh, they have their own internal yield curve, if you will, to pay on deposits. And because deposit taking is a very profitable, it's perhaps even more profitable. In my belief, it is the most profitable part of banking because people are giving you their money, right? They're lending, the depositors are lending the bank their money. So there's no credit risk. You have the money from the depositor. Uh, so if those funds come to you at a price that's below the marginal, the matched maturity, meaning one year, two year, three year maturity value of those funds, you can book that gain implicitly on a present value basis. So that's why you can come up with a number like $5 billion. But that is, that is offset by losses in the loan book because a bank takes in deposits. Essentially, again, people are lending their money to the bank and the bank turns around and takes those deposits, those loans from the depositors, and they relend them. And that's where banks get into trouble because they relend them in riskier uh, securities or riskier loans. And they don't do always a good job at lending. They don't lend at the right price. They don't match maturity, the loans versus the deposits. They get into gap risk. And all of a sudden, banking becomes a very risky business. But if you're good at it, and let's be honest, JP Morgan is very good at it, but they're also very good at having last look. I talked about that before. But the, the law of not having more than 10% of your uh, nation's deposits in any one bank, I think is a little antiquated. It is a law, but laws need to be changed as the world changes. Remember, Canada has only six national banks, which means doing the math that every single one of those banks has more than 10% of the Canadian depositors money in within that bank. Cause there's only six of them. So that's again, a structural problem. I actually think bigger banks, less banks and better managed banks is a solution to the problem but the problem still is there's so excuse me there's still 5000 banks in the USA and it's the big banks that are failing the ones that are in the top 20 that are getting all the press but this is being repeated everywhere in every banking location why because banking is banking it's the business you don't change the business you just change the characters and the ability to manage those risks properly so nobody does anything for free. Jamie Dimon is not a philanthropic enterprise. He has fiduciary responsibility to his stakeholders. Of course he has to make money. But as Convert Bond said, this is the guy that writes uh, um, uh, a very good uh, report called the Bear Traps Report. His name is Larry McDonald, but goes by at Convert Bond. And Larry McDonald was on CNBC today, and he basically said, well, Papa Jamie, he did call Jamie Diamond, Papa Jamie got the last look. And it's probably because the competing bids were so putrid that Jamie Diamond just had to pay a couple of dollars more than the worst bid and they, went, they won the auction. And that's what you get. When you are in a position where you get the last look, you are supposed to take advantage of that situation. And that's banking people, and that's banking when you're too big to fail, and that's banking when you are Jamie Dimon, who, you know, by and large, is the most powerful banker in the world. And yeah. um, and, at, and at this point, they're basically just cannibalizing these other banks, right? Not it cannibalizing to me. No, well, here's the thing, Alex. If you what it's doing is it's rationalizing the banking system. 
Because if there's 5,000 banks, in theory, there's 5,000 jobs that are being repeated when in fact, excuse me, there's one person at each of those banks that's repeated at all at 5,000 times when you could do it with 10 people, not 5,000. So you're squeezing costs out of the system. Sure. Like as a business model, I get it. I get your point. Like there's a massive efficiencies there. What I'm, what I'm getting at is now you're just centralizing more risk though in the, in the banking well, sector in less entities. If you take the Canadian model and the Canadian model has done quite well, you would argue that maybe centralization in something that's as risky as banking is actually a good thing. Now, I, don't get me wrong here, people. Banking is the, the transfer mechanism for the Fiat Ponzi. So, of course, it should be centralized, right? The Fiat Ponzi is cent centralized control. So, yes, in order for them to maintain the Fiat Ponzi for as long as possible, yes, it should be centralized. I think that's the answer, uh, Alex. All right. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, ahead, so just Terrence, real quick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I posted in the nest. I agree with everything Foss said. It's fire, as usual. Although I do think uh, you're a little under-caffeinated today, Foss. I don't know what's going on. I got uh, in at 3 p.m. at 3 a.m. last night, Terrence. I was uh, <laughs> on, an o on a red eye back to Toronto after skiing all weekend. So, yeah. Sorry about that, brother. Uh, it's always Whistler. It's God's so, country. Um, it's God's country. If you guys want to have a Bitcoin meetup out there, it could be uh, as good as Jackson Hole. Nice. I posted in the nest, also in the comments, so I can uh, take it down. You can take it down from the nest uh, once once people get a chance to read it. But just for convenience, JP um, did get did book a one time two point six billion gain and five hundred million in profit per year they expect from the acquisition. Um, and then I'm looking for the primary source for that, but it's been repeated several times on Twitter by bigger, bigger accounts, but, but they did reserve $2 billion and I need to find this. Um, but, but I read it this morning, $2 billion in write downs for restructuring costs. Also first Republic creditors and shareholders, aside from the uninsured depositors who are, uh, uh creditors, right? You went over 250,000, you knew the deposit insurance would not exceed 250 in theory, although in practice, we're finding out that that's not always the case. If you bank with the right bank, unfortunately, that excludes the vast majority of the 5,000 banks we're talking about. They're too small to matter to the Fed um, and the FDIC and U.S. Treasury. Anyway, those people are getting wiped out or they are getting whatever it is, 10 cents on the dollar, however it works out for the creditors. The shareholders should be completely wiped out. That's my understanding. The um, is it halt the presses? What is it that uh, Walker stop doing? the presses? Stop the presses! Right, a thing is like blowing up. It's blowing up, blowing up. Like Elon said something about it. Yeah, he bagged Elon on it. Yeah, and the New York Times is uh, surprisingly silent. Maybe they just want it to go away. Dude, the Bitcoin couple's killing it. That's a double Elon bag. One for Carla, one for Walker. Unreal. <laughs> yeah, we like to say that one good meme can change the world. I mean, here we see it right now. It's happening.
double Elon bag. That's pretty funny, Dom. It's interesting to me, like, uh, we've been doing this show for, uh, I don't know, how long has it been? year and a half almost now? Not quite, but something like that, getting close to that. And just watching the evolution of how news and media flows in our societies, it's pretty fascinating to me. Bitcoin, Chris, good morning. What's up, man? Good morning. Was up late, a little tired, <laughs> but I'm doing all right. I hope everybody's good. Doing good. I don't want to hear how tired you are. You, you have no idea what I did this week. <laughs> I can't, I can't say actually. I opened my mouth before I was like, oh God, I'm already saying it. And speak of the walker. He he appeared. Shout out to Walker. Throwing you an invite. I also want to shout out to Paul Tarantino. If you're still here, Paul. Dude, yeah, throwing you an invite too. That everybody look everybody right now, go find Paul Tarantino in the audience and go look at his profile picture. That is cool as hell. Hey Dom, I had a question to ask you. If you're still um, available, the the firefighters union in Texas that onboarded Bitcoiners, have you been able to use that as an example for um, other other uh, union shops or other other um, um, pension funds uh, to be able to give them an example of of how successful that has been or or, or has it been? Yeah, you know, in my discussions, I haven't tapped into that too much um you know i'd be curious to look at you know again uh similar to the recent drop in bitcoin and the way the media has kind of uh taken taken advantage of that you know that's a lot of a lot of folks will point to to funds doing it and um you know as as a as a reason not to um so really trying to just get them, my, my newest approach is to open up, not with adding Bitcoin to the, uh, you know, to their portfolio, but learning about it and helping to prop up the network, things that are zero cost. One thing that's interesting, you know, we, we, I posted that uh, CalPERS lost $4 billion. And it's funny because members like myself who, uh, you know, are in CalPERS won't even bring this up at a meeting like it, like a, like, like it's a, it's wow. a, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's not even a consideration. It's like, okay, they took a loss, but if they bought a hundred thousand in Bitcoin and it went to 50 because of everything else, you get people showing up. Why are they buying this? How could they have lost, you know, this much? How are we down on this? Because, they buy into a lot of the mainstream media stuff. And so really trying to focus on an approach right now of education, minimal risk, zero cost items, things like providing education to members. I do think that getting the members to put pressure on their own funds is going to be the best bet rather than from the outside getting the leadership to add Bitcoin to um, you know, funds due to the fear of getting crucified if Bitcoin drops. But the Texas situation is an interesting one. 
you know, the one that they point to a lot is the uh, the Canadian Teachers Union with the FTX loss. You know, as a, they go, we'll see what happens. But again, explaining that's different. Um, but it would be good to re uh, investigate how Texas is doing with that that union, and um, definitely uh, an interesting uh, situation there. Hey Walker, good morning. We were talking about you once again right before you showed up. <laughs> and I knew it; my ears were burning, you know, so I had to pop on. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good. Congratulations on the uh, on the double bagger. What did you call it, Dumbe? Yeah, I was saying how they were they were talking about Walker, how you uh, got Elon for the retweet, and I said the Bitcoin couple's killing it. Uh, double bagged elon uh retweets both walker <laughs> and carla so that's that's called a uh, a power couple uh yeah i like you know somebody recently called us uh, a pow couple um and i i like that a little bit more than power hell yeah but not pow in the prisoner no, not, of war not, sense not pow of war, in the yeah. proof of work sense proof of work to people yes, to, clar to clarify we are not we are not prisoners of war we we are soldiers in this war for freedom though in our own humble way i think all of us Luckily, they can't capture us quite as easily because we're on the internet. Um, but and, <laughs> and dematerialized, yeah, even at home, at home we have guns, so that's what they're for, right? Yeah. Are, you, where are you, you planning the million, where you the million man walk down uh, down one of the avenues in uh, New York City, and the chance going to be stop the presses? You know, we're 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 debating ways to uh, to well, you know, do what we do and add a little bit of extra, uh, let's say, fuel to the fire on this and let's uh, we'll, we'll keep you guys updated we, we're some things are brewing um problem is now we're getting into conference season and so it's like oh shit we got to find the time expanding on the spiciness exactly um, the spiciness will, will be like the supply of money just ever expanding the new york times the new york times is feeling like that uh the english lord that uh, went after William Wallace and just like, man, we, we sparked a huge problem here that we shouldn't have done. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, guys, I don't know if we thought this through. Um, phew, maybe we should have just tried publishing the truth. I, I don't know. What do you think? Like, uh, actually, <laughs> this is perfect. This is perfect because, you know, uh, the whole thing about mocking them first, you got to mock them first and then you tell, you point out where they're lying and then you tell the truth. I mean, it's incredible. Like it, and then I forgot who we had on the show the other day. She literally outlined the four steps. She was like, first you mock them, then you point out where they're lying, then you tell the truth, and it. What was the fourth step? Chanting in the streets. Then you drive. No, them no, 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 no. There was one more. Shutter their business. I don't know. It'll come back uh, to me. No, I mean, but as, it's a complete I, game changer. That's 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 the that's the that's the way. I mean, it's it, it's an interesting thing, right? Because like, I think as Bitcoiners, we have this tendency to want to like try and defend um, Bitcoin, like at all costs. Like I, yes. I certainly do, because it's like we know what the potential is here. We know what this can do. We believe that it will bring about this uh, abundant future or at least a future that is a little bit more fair and gives everybody a fair shake right and when we see these attacks come in 
this the knee jerk reaction is like, well, I've got to refute this and figure out, you know, show everyone exactly how this is wrong. But you know what, like that kind of stuff just typically doesn't penetrate into normie land. Like, yeah, it's like we, you know, yeah, within Bitcoin Twitter, all the our fellow Bitcoiners see our dunks on the New York Times, and that's great. Um, and like how how wrong they are, and you know, but if it's going to actually be effective, it has to be seen by the people who are actually believing the bullshit that the New York Times writes. Yes, yeah. And so my thought was like, well, let's just fight fire with satire. Let's take this. Uh, let's make a message that could actually be seen by people in the mainstream. Um, because just defending Bitcoin isn't, it's just going to be viewed as Bitcoiners defending Bitcoin, but some, deep, some deep satire that has an environmental angle. That's what people in the mainstream pay attention to. Well, because they also, oh, don't yeah. realize, they, they don't realize it's satire. But the other thing is that satire tells the truth. Like I'm, I haven't been lying about any of the things I've said, like, this is all true. What a wasteful yeah. industry. Like, and that's the easiest part. Even when we have counter propaganda, we don't have to lie. We can still just tell the truth, and that makes it yeah. so much easier, dude. It's it's amazing. I, and when you said that, I remembered the last point. The point four was that, and I agree with you. Like we're way too on the back foot, way too defensive, defending this, defending that. I've been talking about counterpunching, and this is what you're doing. You're counterpunching. You mock them. You point out the lies. You tell the truth, and then here's the last part. You make them never, ever want to do something like that again. It is funny though that they have to lie about us and Bitcoin to you know get their stuff going, but like we actually can just tell the truth, and it it's like even more impactful. Yeah, because their industry is actually a wasteful pile of shit. You know, Walker, and part of what I was I was going to ask you because I, I was thinking about your campaign on the weekend. Um, I was maybe going to tweet something about it, but it is amazing how you can start with something that's kind of satire or exposing something and then find yourself all caught up in it, like all caught up in, boy, the newspapers are really wasteful industry. Uh, and it's, it, it is bad for the environment. It's chopping down trees, which remove carbon from the air. And you can get all caught up in something that started satirical and then find yourself potentially feeling pretty militant about this thing that you started off somewhat, uh, ironically. And, uh, and so it's, I, there's just something that's important to keep your head about, about yourself and know, like not get, not get too caught up, um, in your, in your own rhetoric. And I, I think this is, there's a learning here in terms of what we've seen happen with so many of these big political movements that have gotten exaggerated way beyond belief. And people are so emotionally committed to them now, uh, and that they're ready to, you know, wipe out parts of civilization to to follow through on these things do i hear you about to defend the newspaper industry tomer i worked I for bet. the newspaper industry for 16 years i it's not an attempt to defend it at all it's so you've attempt. got you've got sap on your hands don't you that's uh, tree blood for those I, who yeah. don't know yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, my, i live in a house paid for by tree blood um <laughs> so that's uh Maybe that's what I'm coming at, uh, but I. But I. How think dare that, you? <laughs> I'm trying How? to make a slightly different point. Just, just a slightly different point, which is we just observe. Look at what's happened, where people have become so militant in their views of things that are that are clearly catastrophized, exaggerated, to the point where one would think it was satire. Like if someone from 1970 was showing up in 2020, all of a sudden 2023. 
and they heard about how panicked we were about carbon dioxide, they they would say that's a joke, right? You guys like the climate looks the climate looks and feels the same as it did fifty years ago. <laughs> carbon dioxide is a really essential part of life. It's 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 what the whole plant it's what most of the biomass is based off of. This is a joke, right? And some somewhere this thing stopped being a joke or stopped being a slight exaggeration and became a massive industry that is that is seeking regulatory intervention into every other industry in the world for the sake of this. Okay, we are at nine sixteen. We're we're rolling into the second hour. We've got Dennis Porter and Nick Batia joining us here shortly. We're going to be rearranging the stage a little bit so that we can fit everybody up here. Uh, very briefly before we go there, uh, welcome up Paul Tarantino, Matt Clintock. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing good. Good to hear you all. I've been I've been out of town for a week fishing in the Everglades. So. Uh, getting caught up and listening to your show and uh, good to be back. Good to, uh, good, to, good to hear the crew. Yeah. When, uh, when you invited me up, I was actually doing about the most cafe Bitcoin thing, which is making some new coffee. So uh, good to hear everybody. Love the conversation. Uh, lo- love the conversation from Voss too. I just I had one quick question, Alex, that maybe you could entertain with, with the audience, but um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me about Bitcoin generally, not just the whole low time preference thing, which is is right on, but it really helps us zoom out a lot. And one of my biggest learnings from reading The Sovereign Individual a couple of years ago was how, you know, as as culture progresses and as humanity progresses, we become less concerned about natural borders and we kind of become more tribal in a very positive sense in that we kind of form affinity groups. Um, I'm a lot more encouraged and optimistic about what's going on overseas beyond the United States uh, in the regulatory world. You know, um, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, even stuff that's going on in the UK right now, that's very much in favor of Bitcoin uh, and kind of reopening banking rails. I'd kind of like to hear some perspectives maybe on what's going on beyond the United States borders that may give us reason to hope. anybody up here have any input on that i mean there's tons of things happening yeah i mean i mean i know there is but i guess my my broader point is that you know i think this audience and obviously a lot of the people i deal with are are really u.s based and a lot of us are focused on the choke point issues which seem to have kind of quieted down a little bit i know that some banking is starting to open back up but i mean it seems like so many other places in the world aren't just don't have the same points of friction that we have here. And um, I don't think maybe what's going on in those other names that we might try to replicate here. Yeah. All, all, I mean, all super interesting. Like you, you look at everything that's occurring, especially in Africa, like Africa is like a, a huge hotbed of bitcoin activity it's wild um and and everywhere however um 
what we need to focus in on here uh, for the rest of the next, you know, 30, 40, whatever minutes is lots of things happening in Washington, D.C. Last week, we had the Bitcoin Policy Summit, and that was attended by a ton of very intelligent and very acute, very smart Bitcoiners who were essentially educating Congress, if my understanding is correct. But I'll let I'll let Dennis give us an update on that. And also I want to say welcome also to Nick. So good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Nick. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us. Thank you morning, so much Alex. for having us, man. Yeah, glad to be here. Go ahead, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so excited for all the things that are happening in the USA right now. You know, we have a lot of efforts in DC, a lot of efforts at the state level. So far, you know, I think we were making a ton of progress uh, about two years ago. You know, it's a story I, I kind of commonly tell, but about two years ago, maybe about two and a half years ago, there was a pretty strong undertone that the United States was going to go the wrong direction on Bitcoin and that uh, we were not going to be able to thrive in a post-Bitcoin world, you know, a hyper-Bitcoinist world, because, you know, many of you the United States empire, so to speak, as in conflict with the world that we're headed towards. Um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, I, I, I absolutely can understand why people feel that way. And even back then, two and a half years ago or so, uh, when I first jumped on to Twitter to talk about Bitcoin, uh, when I first jumped into Clubhouse, you know, I, I kind of felt the same way. And, and, you know, we were in that shutdown. Things were very, I mean, it just felt very authoritarian. It felt like we were really you know, the whole world was going the wrong direction. And I became very concerned. But in, in all of that, when people were talking about, you know, oh, well, we're just going to have to, you know, move out of the United States, we're going to have to flee, because, you know, the United States is going to crumble. And, you know, it's not going to survive in a Bitcoin world. And I kind of just woke up one day, and I was like, realized that the idea of trying to convince my entire family who doesn't, you know, isn't doesn't care about Bitcoin to the level that I do would uh, it's not gonna. It's not gonna flee the country with me, right? Like uh, they're not gonna want to sell the house, sell the business, uh, move to a foreign country, move to a, probably likely a third world country or a developing nation. So I, I kind of just sat there and realized this was somewhat of a fantasy to believe that I could convince my family to that I'm not gonna give up my Bitcoin and that I'm gonna have us all move to a you know a foreign country. So instead of living in that um, framework, I, I I woke up and I said to myself, I'm gonna do everything humanly possible to make sure that the United States does move the right direction on Bitcoin. Um, and that started with helping you know, candidates, members of Congress, and eventually developed into me launching Satoshi Action Fund, um, among a few other things that I've, I've pursued, including also now launching Satoshi Action Education, which will be the main entity that will be helping to get educational work done in DC um, in this upcoming event that we're about to speak about. But, but all, all that to say that it, we have clearly turned a corner we have multiple groups doing great work in DC. We have multiple individuals like myself um, that are actively pursuing a world where the United States does participate in the future and is actually a leader on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. So yes, very pumped for what's going on and looking forward to developing events. Uh, this developing event that we have coming up will be for us to go and educate members of Congress it's critical that we get good education in front of them. 
uh, and have these relationships be built. So we are going to be going to DC to hand out Bitcoin books. Um, and that'll be done in a couple of different ways. Obviously, we can go you know, from office to office and just be like, here you go. Thank you very much. Here's your book. Uh, but we're also going to be setting up uh, you know, personal handoffs to folks that we think are very receptive to being able to receive Bitcoin books. And one of those books will uh, be Laird Money by Nick Batia. And I'm really excited because Nick will also be joining us in D.C. for this event. Uh, so we'll be handing out his book and also we'll be renting a room or reserving a room. Can't pay for it. Uh, you got to have someone who was willing to reserve it for you. Uh, last time it was Senator Ron Wyden who reserved the room for me for me to be in the Senate Finance Committee hearing room. Uh, this time it's uh, TBD, but we're in conversations with someone to get another room set where we can kind of hang out and talk to members of Congress, talk to staffers and continue that educational process about the various books out there that we think are important for these members to speak or, or for them to read about. So, um, Nick, I'll let you go, though, and, and talk a little bit about the book and, and why you think it's important to, to get it in front of members. Thank you, Dennis, and thank you to Alex and Swan for having me on. Uh, it's good to be back here at Cafe Bitcoin. Uh, it's always a great conversation, and I'm now upset that I was only listening in for 10 minutes before I came on because uh, you guys were talking about some awesome stuff. Um, I wanted to just say real quickly on the newspaper front and the wasteful uh, you know, cutting down of trees for newspaper delivery on the planet in a digital age, which I totally agree with. Um, the one that I use in my talks is the banks keeping their lights on and, and computers running in the most bloated industry on the planet, which is the financial industry. And so <clears throat> it's just something that you guys can add in there to the conversation when you're talking about the hypocrisy of Bitcoin energy consumption. Like what about the banks and all those neon signs and all those buildings uh, all around the world? So, um, but back to the topic at hand, I really appreciate Dennis bringing me into this mix. It basically came because they, uh, Satoshi Action and Orange Pill app got together to do this uh, the Bitcoin standard handout in DC. And people said, hey, what about layered money? Let's include that book too. Um, Senator Lummis and Senator Ted Cruz have both publicly spoken about reading layered money. And um, so we know that DC and Capitol Hill is already uh, familiar with the book. I've had a conversation with Senator Lummis that she's actually act actively hands out uh, copies of layered money to people that are coming to her when they say, hey, I want to learn more about Bitcoin. She gives them layered money. And so that brought energy to layered money in D.C. Why do people think that it's a good book to give members of Congress? Because it presents Bitcoin as a technology tool, as a speech tool, as a mathematical tool that should, in theory, be very welcomed by the American rule of law, because we use and you know, appreciate innovations and tools that are, you know, add to the human advancement, you know, and so Bitcoin is that that's what Bitcoin represents. And Bitcoin is just a first layer money. It's just a commodity. It's a virtual commodity, digital commodity, however you want to classify it. It's just a mathematical thing 
that for you to as a you know as a country to suggest banning or restricting the use of is anti-speech and anti-freedom that's not a partisan issue and that's the message i'm going to deliver when i speak with the members of congress of course we'll be handing them copies of layered money but it is about this and i I'm inspired by what Dennis is doing and talking about because I'm an optimist. So when people put it in black and white, you know, America is pro Bitcoin or anti Bitcoin. That is obscene. There will always be people that are anti everything. It is their right to have that opinion. But with the American spirit of culture, innovation, Bitcoin has been embraced and, you know, people have dedicated their lives to the tune of millions of Americans already. And our republic is set up in a way that empowers the individual to pursue their own desires and conquests. And so what Dennis is doing and what the people that are passing these bills in states are doing is representing their opinion that Bitcoin is something that we should protect. And that will continue guaranteed, regardless of what anybody wants to do in D.C. at the higher up level. The people will proceed with Bitcoin. And that is the American way. And maybe the legal battle over Bitcoin lasts 50 years. But then what happens in the next 50 years? We build, we build, we build. And what's going to happen in 50 years? An outright ban? No. If Bitcoin is entrenching itself already in the fabric of the world, the fabric of the financial infrastructure, the, you know, the fabric of our society, you know, when you hear the word Bitcoin in movies or you see Bitcoin being tattooed on people's arms or you see that Bitcoin sticker under the traffic light in, you know, whatever city in any country in the world, that is Bitcoin's permanence. So Sorry for the rant, I'll pass it back, but I'm excited to be involved in this project, excited to give layered money to the, the members of Congress to have those conversations. We're raising money, uh, de- doing it at a deep discount. $8 will get you one book to a Congress person. And um, we have the Geyser page. I really appreciate Dennis, Satoshi Action, Orange Pill app, Saifedean, special shout out to Saifedean because his book, has the most energy from this community. And so I'm writing the coattails of that, but I appreciate everyone's support of Layered Money being a unique book. Some people have said it's a better book to give the members of Congress because it has a certain angle that's more approachable. That is not the point here. You know, we're going to have both books. We're going to have them in D.C. and I'm excited to be involved. Yeah, I mean, Nick, that was incredible. Um, You know, I'm going to have to take you there and have you actually give a speech about the importance of Bitcoin and, and layered money. That was, uh, that was awesome. Um, also just as, as Nick was mentioning there, we have a geyser campaign that we're running. Uh, you can donate light through lightning sats to the campaign. Uh, every $8 gets another book into the hands of a, of an office or a member of Congress there in DC. And if you want to go to the very top, there is a, a link there to be able to contribute towards that effort um, that is being put together by myself, um, Satoshi Action Fund, or excuse me, Satoshi Action Education, 
uh, and the Orange Pill app folks. And we're really, we're really pumped to be able to put this together. And it kind of came together um, as they were trying to get these books for safe to be able to join the Orange Pill app. And I reached out to the Orange Pill team. and was like, hey, what are, you, you know, what are your plans to hand these books out? Uh, and they said they were just going to mail them. And I was like, why don't we just go there and, and do it in person? So since then, we've, we've added Nick to the process. And we're pumped to be able to have him participate. And, and also, Nick is willing to fly there. Uh, and be there with us, which is which is huge. I think it's, it makes a big difference when a author is willing to participate. So we're hoping we can get uh, the uh, safe to come. Uh, obviously, he's across the Atlantic Ocean, so it's quite a big trip. I've, I've already reached out to him. He said the chances are pretty low. But um, if you get an opportunity, uh, if anybody here knows him, maybe give him a little bit of uh, encouragement to, to participate in the process. We'd love to have him be there. Uh, so yeah, if you also, oh, one thing, oh man, I can't have so many things going on. I I almost forgot. So uh, one really key part about this, you know, there's a lot of offices and a lot of members, and it will take a lot of work for, you know, one, two, three people, potentially four people, I think, um, would be me, Nick, and the Orange Bill team. Uh, you have an opportunity uh, to join us there in D.C. You can come and volunteer and be there for not only the book handout, but we are going to have, like I said, a room uh, reserved at the Capitol to be able to give these books out. So if you want to join that, um, there is going to be a Eventbrite. I already have it set up. I think I've got a tweet out even. And I'll put it up here on the top in just a moment. But you'll be able to join us there. We've already got a couple folks that have signed up to volunteer. I, you know, I don't know how many we would need. Probably I would say like 10 or 15 at the most. We don't want some like uh, crazy amount, but um, yeah, I would I would jump in there as quickly as possible once I post that link, and, and you can come join us in Washington D.C. as we hand these books to members of Congress, but also join us for the almost like a social hour that we're going to have. Um, depending on what we can do funding wise, we're going to potentially have drinks and food and and you name it there for people as well. Awesome stuff! Glad to hear you guys are doing this. It's very exciting. Congratulations also, Nick. Very good stuff. Oh, I appreciate it. And I wanted to add one more thing here. When we go to D.C. Um, and we're handing out books, what we're doing is we're marking our own Bitcoin territory within the United States. And we and that's just something that I think people are doing broadly to identify with Bitcoin as something that, hey, this is something else that you're not going to take away from me. Um, and I do think I gave a speech in Austin um, in 2021 that Bitcoin is, is an American ideal. And when I say Bitcoin is American, I mean that it represents the same things that America represents. I don't think that America owns Bitcoin. No, it's definitely far from that. Bitcoin is a global tool. So when I say Bitcoin is American, I'm not saying that we are in charge of Bitcoin or anything of the sort, but that it's American ideal. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. That's a very, very important point, And I also agree with it 100%. Uh, also, just uh, you know, took a quick moment, and if you want to go to the top now, you can you can jump into that Eventbrite there where we have the Bitcoin Standard, Laird Money, different books we're giving out to the members of Congress. But you can um, you can you can sign up 
to volunteer for that. The time is I'm pretty you know certain that the time will be nailed down here shortly. The, the time that is up on that link is maybe TBD, but it's definitely happening on June 22nd. And also the room that we reserve at the Capitol is TBD, but we do have already a member who's agreeing to help us reserve that room. So it, we're very excited about this process. And yeah, if you want to, if you want to join us, if you're on the East coast and it's an easy drive, please click the link above volunteer. If you want to uh, potentially fly in, obviously we'd love to have you as well, but um, yeah, it'd be free, free to join us uh, if you want to volunteer for that. And I will have members of the Bitcoin layer team there as well. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and we will be, you know, we will be just doing our best to have as many conversations with either staffers or the members of Congress themselves. So that's why I'm flying out uh, from LA and I'm just really excited to be a part of this. So thank you for, we already passed 50 books on the donation front. So thank you for everyone that threw their stats towards that. Uh, on the geyser and, um, you know, hope to get another 50 more uh, books purchased for these members of Congress and um, and get them into as many hands as possible. All right. What Dennis was saying is a link is in the nest. If you want to get more involved in that or you want to donate, you can do that there. Uh, you guys, Dennis, do you want to give us a little um, summary of how things went last week in D.C.? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, for me, I was uh, in Austin last week. So for another event, um, oh, I, heard right. DC, I heard the DC event went well, but I was in Austin. There's a very, that, very anti that picture mining bill. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, there's a very uh, anti-Bitcoin mining bill in Texas right now. Um, surprisingly, it's very unfortunate. Uh, what happened was a senator there, a powerful senator there, believed that Bitcoin mining is raising energy prices and is, is causing harm to the grid. And so they introduced this bill that would cap the amount for how much Bitcoin mining can participate in grid balancing programs like demand response, ancillary service programs. And it would also remove any incentive for Bitcoin miners to create jobs in rural parts of the state, economically depressed zones of the state. And it's very unfortunate because Bitcoin mining when it comes to rural jobs and grid balancing, it, I mean, those are probably two of its best features. So this really strikes at the heart of the value of the technology. And we will are going there to D.C. now. We've gone for two separate days of massive lobbying. The first time was uh, two, three weeks ago. Uh, and we got eight hours at the Capitol going from office to office, uh, speaking to the members of the state, uh, Texas state legislator about the problems with this bill and why we oppose it. And also we asked, you know, what's the purpose of this bill? Like if you, if, if, if you think that, you know, you want to improve reliability or if you want to improve energy prices for Texans, then this bill definitely misses the mark. And I'm not the only one saying that. Uh, the second time when we returned to the Capitol just this last week in, in uh, Texas, we were also joined by former interim CEO of ERCOT, Brad Jones. And we went from office to office with him as well. And he said, you know, to the, to the members there, you know, what is the purpose of this bill? What is it trying to accomplish? Because if it's trying to accomplish reduced energy prices or grid reliability, it absolutely misses the mark because Bitcoin mining is one of the most powerful tools for balancing the grid that we have available to us 
today. And that, that's, that's very powerful coming from Brad Jones, the former CEO of Urkel, and actually also the former CEO of New York ISO. This is another thing we do remember. This is, this is a very talented, very experienced individual. He helped write the ship from Winterstorm Yuri to Winterstorm Elliot in Texas. He helped to repair and remend the grid there and lead it to, uh, you know, through another storm that ultimately outperformed the rest of the country. Everyone else was dealing with brownouts and blackouts during this last Christmas in 2022, except for Texas. And it was partly because of Brad Jones leading the ship, but it was also partly because we now had potentially up to 1.7 gigawatts of demand response that was made available by Bitcoin miners. So we're there in Texas fighting against this thing because we think it's really bad. We have made a lot of progress. It looked very dark and bleak in the beginning, but we have not stopped. I mean, we've spent probably 20 plus hours lobbying against this thing in person in Austin. Now we also have a lobbyist that's on the ground full time for us as an organization, Satoshi Action Fund, that is just there keeping an eye on it, talking to members, and is continuing to push things the right direction. Uh, also, during that last trip to Austin, we held a rally where well over 150 people attended, and we were able to get everyone together and say, you know, this is why we you know, oppose this thing. It's very cool to see a lot of folks come in, fill out the tent that we had put up there on the, the lawn of the Capitol. But it was a very great event, and it was very successful, and uh, so is the lobbying effort so far. And we hope, you know, it's the dangerous thing oftentimes when you lean in on these issues to really fight back is you put a lot of time, money, resources, you know, uh, sweat and blood, so to speak, into fighting back. And I, I am very, very, very passionately trying to ensure that we get the win on this because I want for the Bitcoin space to see that we can beat bills, we can kill bills. Because we have, Satoshi Action Fund has proven that we can pass law. We passed a, 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 the right to mine law in Arkansas. The governor signed that into law. We're about to see that same bill potentially get signed into law in Montana and also in Missouri. But it's very hard to kill bills, especially for powerful senators like Senator Colcourse in Texas. And so I very, very much am working day and night to try to kill this thing because I want the Bitcoin space, I want the entire community to realize that we can have an impact on the political system. Um, but yes, great event in D.C., um, glad to see more people are being educated. I want to continue to see that educational process take place with the books. Uh, but I was uh, I was unfortunate that I was able to you know I had to miss that one and I was in uh, Austin instead trying to keep uh, keep that the epicenter keep Texas leading on Bitcoin mining for the rest of the country. Understand very very important. Glad you glad you were doing that. I'm glad you clarified, Tomer. Oh, sorry, my mic. <laughs> I didn't realize my mic was hot. All right, let's go I with Nate and then Terrence. Can you hear me? Am I coming through okay? Lay me Charlie, go brother. Awesome, thank you. Hope everybody's doing well today. Just a quick question, uh, Dennis. Maybe maybe a follow up. But um, since this bill is directly attacking the increased cost of electricity based on the you know theoretically Bitcoin miners affecting that, has anybody brought up inflation? I mean, I'm, we've all been struggling it with the past couple of years, and last year, uh, inflation in electricity specifically nationwide went up fourteen point three percent in cost. So if that's their main concern with this bill, is, is anybody remember the last two years? Is, is that, is that, has that been brought up? 
it's generally not a talking point when we're speaking to the members. Uh, you know, obviously, energy prices have gone up a lot of, you know, partly due to fuel costs. Uh, the increase in costs of fuel costs has gone up a lot, but no, it's not. It's not temp. It's not generally something that we we discuss. We really nail down how Bitcoin mining is very good for grid balancing. It's very good for rural job creation, and if balancing the grid or reducing energy costs is their goal in Texas, then they should be very much pro Bitcoin mining. I'm good, Brian. Uh, hey, Dennis, good to see you, and Nick. Um, I have a question for Dennis, which is, do you think or have you heard um, any anything about why um, that guy we, we supported, Erica Rhodes, against ben, ben Sherman, why he hasn't tweeted about Bitcoin ever since he got primary? Do you think there's a relationship there where politicians might be more wary of uh, talking against Bitcoin, Senator Warren being an exception, because they don't want to get primaried. Have you heard anything about Ben Sherman and his people on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have definitely noticed, Terrence, um, and good to see you also. Uh, I've definitely noticed that he's been much more silent on the issue. Not exactly sure why. Um, you know, I'd like to believe that despite the fact that we didn't win, that we had an impact on uh, Brad Sherman and his office and making them realize that this is not something that he should be, you know, vehemently opposing because there are people out there that will do what they can to try to, you know, hinder him and possibly replace him and um, in the position that he holds. So, yeah, we'd, we'd love to believe that. Hard to know for sure. But uh, yeah, that's that's possible. And also thank you for the few people who are uh, donating to the uh, the Geyser campaign and also signing up to volunteer up top in the nests. Um, I see those coming through and I very much appreciate and looking forward to seeing whoever volunteered in D.C. All right. Any other major topics you guys want to hit? Uh, are you cool with us opening it up for Q&A? Yeah, I mean, what, one last little thing, too, to just mention is there's a lot of activities going on. If you're in North Carolina uh, or nearby tomorrow, there is a you know going to be a hearing in uh, Buncombe County, if I, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's B-U-N-C-O-M-B-E. And they are going to be trying to pass a county ban, a one-year ban on Bitcoin mining there. Unfortunately, it's partly because there are some bad actors in that state. So just wanted to shout out my, uh, my friends in North Carolina. They're going to be putting some together, uh, Justin Orkney and a few others uh, in the Bitcoin world. So if you are in North Carolina and you want to show up respectfully, peacefully, do not show up and yell and scream, but um, there's going to be a little bit of an effort to try to go to that hearing and convince county commissioners that Bitcoin mining, um, you know, yes, we get rid of the bad actors, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, happy to move to Q&A other than that. Cool. All right. Anybody up here who has stuff, uh, questions for either Dennis or Nick, um, let's go. And then if you're in the audience and you want to come up, please raise your hand or request to come up. We will bring you up. You can also ask a question in our Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash uh, hey. cafe. Yep. What were you saying? It's Larry Parr here. I'm dialing in. Uh, from Dublin in Ireland. Great to listen to you all. I'll be following a good bit of your all your work over there in America. Uh, just to let people know here, uh, uh, great work, Dennis, and 
Alex and everybody else, all the Swan Group and Nick. Uh, we had an event in Meadow Care last year in Dublin, in Ireland. Uh, it's only supposed to be a small meetup uh, with about 30 or 50 people. We ended up getting about 250 people at it. We're having the same thing again this year in May. Uh, we have Cross Zooming in. We have uh, Bridge for Bitcoin coming over to talk to people about uh, accepting Bitcoin to uh, your business. We have accountants coming in. We've invited some politicians. So, question, like, uh, out of curiosity, did you come? Did you have a question when you came up? Yeah, I was just, I was just kind of saying about uh, how we're helping uh, educate people. Uh, Bitcoin in Ireland and in Dublin. Okay, cool. Well, thanks, thanks for that. The best time to do those kind of things is is kind of the morning part of the show. You're welcome to come up in the first hour for stuff like that. We're actually doing Q and A right now with Dennis and Nick, so appreciate you coming, man. Yeah, yeah. Peter, what do you got? Hey, Dennis. Um, I, I heard you uh, talking a lot about the process, uh, the issues that you bring up, and you know how you go about trying to address. Uh, these individuals that are making policy. I, I'm not sure that I really heard um, how you feel like it's being received and, and whether or not your voice is being heard. And I was hoping you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. It's being very well received. We, you know, at Satoshi Action Fund, like I, like I mentioned, you know, we've, we've passed law in Arkansas and also are about to pass law in Montana and in Missouri, hopefully, you know, obviously nothing is guaranteed until it's done, but we feel pretty confident about Montana and we're feeling, I would say it's, it's definitely above 50, 50, maybe on the 60, 70% chance that we pass something there as well, at least get something across the finish line, maybe not the whole bill. Um, it's just a very different process there. So we'll see what happens, but uh, very receptive uh, because we pitch Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin in a very unique way. You know, everybody is you know, out here trying to pitch freedom money, which we think is great. Um, I, I tend to take the approach of trying to pitch Bitcoin mining in the same way that the marijuana industry pitched their industry um, at the state level, which is to go around and not talk about how you know we should be able to smoke whatever we want to smoke. The marijuana industry instead decided to pitch their um, you know the potential of having their industry legalized as a way to create tax revenue, jobs. And also as a way to reduce crime and increase property values. And, and I didn't make these up. Those are the literal talking points of the marijuana industry over the last 10 years. Uh, so we do the exact same thing with Bitcoin mining. We say it's jobs, it's local investment, grid stability, environmental cleanup, and the ability to enhance green and renewable carbon-free energy projects. And there's not a policymaker on the planet who doesn't like those things. It's very easy once you get them listening to you and convincing them to, um, for them to be receptive. In fact, even in Missouri, uh, twice now, we have had unanimous, uh, unanimous in the sense that both Republicans, all Republicans and all Democrats in the committee hearings voted in favor of our policy because it's common sense policy. It's do you like jobs? Do you like grid stability? Great. There's an industry that can help you with that. Do you want to attract that industry to rural America where it can help improve your economy and reduce your energy prices? So it's, it's just a different way of pitching it. Um, I'm not here to pitch freedom money to people, uh, although I'm sure there are some people that might be interested in that at the state level. But uh, I'm here just to pitch economic incentives and also an improved grid stability. Uh, policymakers like that seem to be attracted to it. And we haven't really had any pushback other than people who might be just questioning you know, what, whether what we say is true 
But if we need to, we spend time with those individual policymakers and, and show them how Bitcoin is able to accomplish these things. But yes, the, very receptive. Uh, but we also are working in states where we think we can you know, have wins. You know, we're not going to not going to the middle of uh, Manhattan, New York, and trying to have this conversation. You know, we're going to middle America where people are needing jobs and they're needing the economic build out because they've been left behind by the last 20, 30 years of, of economic policy in this country. So we have a lot of success there so far. All right. We've got a couple of new people coming up. We have Elizabeth Henry. Good morning. Welcome. Did you have a question or a comment? You have to unmute lower left. Okay. Guess not. We will continue on with Joe Walters. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Um, I'm a regulatory attorney in Tallahassee. My question for is for Dennis, and it is specifically um, how do we expand the lobbying effort in states where we don't necessarily have the same energy characteristics like Florida? We don't have the same cheap energy that, that Texas has. We from a mining perspective, it's a little bit more difficult to spin up a mining operation, although there's certainly opportunities with uh, our peakers. We have plenty of peakers in the state to cover hot summer days. Um, but I just wanted to see how does that pitch change in a state where the energy doesn't necessarily support profitable mining? Which state is it that doesn't support profitable mining that you said? Florida. We have higher energy costs. Is it possible to do it? Do we have a lot of companies in the state? I'm not aware of them. Uh, there are some, not a lot. Uh, my perspective is that, yes, there will be, depending on the state, there will be, uh, you know, more mining, less mining. Obviously, in Texas, you're going to have oh, pretty much always the most amount of mining potentially in that state. Um, you know, states like Georgia, Ohio will probably be, you know, big hubs for times to come. Uh, in my opinion, all states will benefit from Bitcoin mining, but you will need regulatory shifts, uh, policy shifts in some states to really start to experience the benefits of Bitcoin mining. Because the, the thing about Bitcoin mining, the way I view it is that it's a piece of energy infrastructure and that it helps improve uh, energy efficiency. And there are you know vastly different energy systems in every state and every region, and they all have different rules and laws on the books, but they all have inefficiencies that can benefit from Bitcoin mining. So it's all about just trying to find the right regulatory piece or shift. You know, and, and so it's the question is spot on. You know, what what types of shifts do we need to see take place? Uh, for instance, it's like in Florida, you know, we might need to have uh, demand response programs built out there. It's it's all about recognizing the, the unique load profile of Bitcoin mining. So it's a very unique load in the fact that it uses a lot of power and is also a consistent draw of power, like it wants to be on all the time, but if needed, it can be interrupted at any time and, and it doesn't matter when. Obviously, it's, you know, it's important to compensate or incentivize the miners to shut down, which is why there's so much success in Texas because they do properly incentivize. And they also have proper telemetry. Tele telemetry allows miners to be able to see the exact price of energy in the exact moment that they're using it, which is not possible in uh, necessarily all energy systems because they do not have proper telemetry or properly proper measuring devices to be able to determine the price of energy in the moment that they're using it. So what you would need is potentially better telemetry um, and potentially better regulatory switches to be able to allow miners to participate in grid balancing programs and energy systems. So 
we at Satoshi Action are very interested in and invested in growing uh, programs like demand response at the state level, which is where energy policy predominantly takes place. Um, we're also really interested in uh, the potential for uh, services that are provided through RTOs and ISOs. Uh, I mean, at Texas, ERCOT is an RTO. Uh, the programs that they provide through their power markets are part of the reason why mining is so successful. So we want to see a lot of more of that take place all over the country. And there's many other groups, not just Bitcoin miners, who are interested in that as well. All right, we have time for maybe one or two more questions. We'll let you guys make some closing comments before we wrap up the show. Walker. Yeah, uh, so Dennis, a quick question for you, kind of uh, zooming out, or I guess as zoomed out as uh, you can be when talking about politics in America. But um, I'm curious what your thoughts are going into the next presidential election, how uh, you think Bitcoin is going to kind of fit into this larger narrative. Um, do you think it is going to be something that becomes a let's say a bigger piece of that political puzzle than it was in prior elections um and uh, how do you see also kind of the uh, you know like the red blue dynamic hopefully um, bitcoin does not become a partisan issue but i'd just be curious on your thoughts on that just kind of as, as the larger landscape develops moving towards the next election it's a great question it's something that i have been thinking about for a while uh, ever since i decided to become politically active you know what was this next presidential election going to look like and i think we you know i'm very confident that bitcoin has an opportunity to become a part of the dialogue we are you know as someone who's you know from portland oregon you know pretty blue state you know i want to see the blue states move the right direction uh, just as much as the red states but you know we should also remember and be thankful to some degree that we do have people um, in the in the Republican Party who are very much outspoken and favorable towards this industry. Like, pe you know, I I think ultimately it'll be kind of somewhat again. Like, I, lo I love to use the marijuana industry uh, analogy, but you know, they started in the blue states. They started in Washington and in Colorado, passed pro marijuana legislation, and then they moved all across the country. And now, you know, seventy five percent plus of the country as pro-marijuana legislation on the books, including many red states. So I, I think the same exact thing is going to happen in some ways with uh, Bitcoin, or it's already taking place that way. And that is that we're going to kind of start in these red states. We're going to start with some Republicans, and then eventually we'll move over. But yeah, we have a really um, fortunate opportunity, I think, this next presidential cycle, especially on the Republican side, if we're able to get uh, debates going. I know that um, there is at least one presidential candidate who is very pro Bitcoin, um, it, you know, in the sense that they like they they're very, very attracted to it, like they're not orange pilled on it, so to speak, but they are they're looking seriously at Bitcoin and also the broader you know crypto space. Let's not kid ourselves. They're, they're going to be looking at um, all the issues that are related to digital assets. I think that they will see um, some they'll have some concerns with the SEC and the way that they're approaching the entire space. Obviously, I think that they're going to have big concerns with the banking issue as well. And uh, I think that they will see the value of Bitcoin and hopefully potentially Bitcoin mining. I think that's that has a potential to play into the policy platform for this individual. So we'll see. Um, um, you know, I'm chatting with their campaign a little bit. We'll see if if they actually you know come out and where they come out on this stuff. So, But it's exciting because if they do land where I hope they land and we do have debates, then we could hear debate questions about Bitcoin. And I think that would be huge for the entire country. 
Hey, Dennis, real quick. Um, you, you keep talking about the marijuana industry. And as I, I'm from Washington State, and as I understand it, the marijuana industry is relatively unbanked because of the federal laws um, and the banking restrictions. Sounds like a great synergy for um, at, um, mobilizing that base towards Bitcoin. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I've thought about it for a different reason. I've thought about, you know, maybe there is potential to bank the digital asset space, Bitcoin space, I say, right? Because this is an issue that touches every coin, you know, whether you're, you know, Bitcoiner, you're ETH maxi, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, we all still need banking services, uh, as especially businesses, right? Like Bitcoin miners, it's a huge issue. The banking issue is a huge issue for them. Like, you, uh, you know, obviously we all want to live in a world where, we don't necessarily need to rely on banks so much anymore, but businesses definitely rely on banks to operate and they are being unbanked right now, uh, very much like the marijuana industry was unbanked. So there's definitely some correlation there and I'm hoping we can figure something out, but I, I'm not an expert on banking. We're looking into potentially trying to bring someone in to do some research on banking so that we can determine whether or not we can follow the same path as the marijuana industry in some ways because the, uh, it's, you know, it's still a federal crime to possess, distribute, or grow marijuana, and it's still not possible to get federal banking or to access a bank that has access to federal bank, you know, the FedMaster account. So, you know, what what can be done there for the digital asset space that the marijuana industry has done? There's definitely some interesting things there. Um, I don't know if Bitcoin can be used uh, full stack for banking services the way I think people want it to be used. Be just because there's still so much of the economic system is held within um, traditional banking these days. So we're looking into it. If you are a Bitcoin miner and you're interested in funding that kind of research, uh, Satoshi Action Education is looking for folks to be able to get behind that work. We, we, need, to, we need to hire you know, literal banking experts, researchers to determine you know, what can be done and how we can move forward. I, I was right. thinking, Dennis. Hang on. Quick, no, uh, no, no time for follow-up. No. We're done done okay 30 seconds make it fast please we got we got to close here i i was thinking dennis that 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 if the if the people who are going into marijuana stores instead of paying in cash are paying in bitcoin that it proliferates the use of bitcoin via the the same industry that you're trying to use to proliferate the um, legality of and use of bitcoin mining yeah, I, I, it's it's definitely interesting. I've thought about that one for a long time. I just don't know how to get, you know, that adoption moving forward. But it's it's it seems kind of like an obvious one, right? But we'll see what happens. It's not my area of expertise, so unfortunately, it's not where I'm going to lean in on. But maybe someone here or knows how to and can help me do that. All right, that's pretty much it. Uh, closing comments, if you guys don't mind, um, and then we will wrap. Nick. And Dennis, thank you both for being here. Very much appreciate it. Nick, do you have any closing comments you want to make? Well, I I mean, listen to how many topics uh, there are at hand and how many <laughs> things Dennis is working on. I mean, think about all of the work that, you know, they say it takes all walks of life. Like it really does for Bitcoin, too. So I'm I just appreciate all of you guys, everyone doing their part. That's all I got. Right on. Thank you, Alex. Dennis. Dennis. Yeah, I'll make it super quick. Just thank you, everybody, for listening in. And it's been great to be able to come up here and share all the work that we're doing. Uh, put a, I put a few links up top. You got the North Carolina thing where they're fighting back against the uh, the one-year ban in that county there. 
if you want to help, you know, get in contact with those people, get in touch with the North Carolina blockchain folks, great people over there. Uh, the second one, obviously, is the big book handout. You can volunteer for that. that that's the second link up top. Uh, I think I've already seen about four or five volunteers just from this room alone. So thank you to you that all the folks there that are going to help us hand out pro Bitcoin books there in D.C. And then um, the third one being uh, Nick Batia's book, Lyric Money. There's a link there. You can donate to the Geyser campaign. Every eight bucks helps us get another book into the hand of a member of Congress. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And also, uh, as always, you know, Satoshi Action Fund is looking for uh, monthly contributors. Monthly contributors help us kind of help make sure that we don't have to depend on the corporate interests so much, so to speak. So anybody that's interested, you can go to satoshiaction.io and check out all the work that we're doing there. Awesome. Man and Larry, and I appreciate you guys. That's it. We're pretty much done. Two, um, a couple of quick items, uh, announcement things before we close out. Tomorrow on Cafe Bitcoin, Geyser Fund is coming on. That's going to be really cool. I haven't talked to these guys yet. Looking forward to that. Also, Stratum V2 fundraiser. Stratum V2 is the missing piece of the decentralization, excuse me, decentralization puzzle for Bitcoin. If you want to contribute to Bitcoin in a big way, go donate to this project. MicroStrategy World, May 1st through the 4th. Link is in the nest for tickets. Swan 30 for a discount. And then finally, you have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. This is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you cannot catch the live show, throw me or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show. My crew and Peter, Sats for Life producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me DM. Happy to help you. Thanks again to the speakers. Dennis, Nick, everybody who comes up here on the regular, Walker, all you guys spending their personal time teaching people about this bright orange future this is what we call getting on the mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out. You'll figure it out. Love you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today and crush it.